This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Just after 1 p.m., as usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Joined by a really fun group of people today. As usual, Greg Nicholson, my partner in crime, is with us. Greg, how are you doing? You can't say how you, you can't say I'm glad to be back before I say how you doing. I had my answer prepared. We practiced this so many times, dude, but still nothing, man. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you, Kingsley? I'm feeling good, man. Feeling good. Also, somebody we don't get to speak to too often, Ranjani Munusami. How are you doing? I'm back from the war zone. From the war zone. Also known as Parliament. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk to you about this fruit you've just released to us, but uh, that's in a second. And also, Russell Pollard. uh, the head of Jesuit Institute essay. Did I say it right? Jesuit. You did. I, I always get it wrong, man. I said Jesuit. I said Jesuit. The last time you were on, I said Jesuit. So you did indeed. I remember that. <laughs> I put you straight. <laughs> you did. Okay, before we get into it, Ranjani, please tell us about the fruit that you brought. What fruit is that? I can't believe this. What I mean, Greg's from yeah. Australia and you're from Kenya and you, you don't know what a pomegranate is. I'm from Danhauser. It's like the smallest dot on the South African map. Okay. A real backwater. Oh, okay. Thank you for that addition. Okay, so Greg's tweeting so the show. Even in my hick town, yeah, yeah. we know what pomegranates are. We grow it and you don't. And it's 84 rand a kilo. So, yeah, you owe me lots of drinks. What's a kilo? A kilogram. But how much is what? What? One pomegranate. I don't know, okay. but it's sold in kilograms. But, okay. but your mother has a pomegranate tree, you were saying. Yeah? You so I don't... Profit off it. What? Okay, so I think we're going to have to come on. back to this one. I think we haven't done our homework, guys. I'm sorry. Greg's going to research yeah, the actual Thank goodness price. none of us were presenting last week's we're budget. Just, we're just going to come back to this one. <laughs> Remember, you can tweet us uh, at DM Shows. It was great engaging with you guys last week. So please tweet us again and we'll chat there. Now to actually jump into the fun stuff. It's been a big, big week in politics. And the big story dominating the headlines is what's going on with the finance ministry and and is there like some kind of proxy war happening between uh, Minister Pravin Godan and the president. Ranjani, <laughs> you know this better than anyone. I was confusing this with the SARS drama, so clearly I'm not doing too well. What's going on? I, I think maybe we should just go back, Ranjani. Yeah. Where did this start? Okay, well... In order to understand um, where it started, you, you need to just look at what, what's, what's happened in, in this current week. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had this whole exchange of media statements with the president saying there's no problem and Pravin Gordon and Gweta Mantashe saying there is a problem. So what is the problem? So it, it all stems from this, uh, this uh, what is called a, a rogue spy unit mm-hmm. uh, operating within SARS. Pravin Gordon... Uh, was was former SARS commissioner in 2007. This unit was established. Um, and what what he says and what other people, other officials at SARS says, was um, an investigation unit to be able to tra- track down serious tax, tax dodges, so that the the normal SARS machinery was not able to do that work. So they needed to employ intelligence um, tools. To be able to, to track mm. the mm. movement of money and, and hence the establishment of this unit. Now, the anomaly is that the South Africans, in, uh, South Africa's intelligence legislation does not provide for an intelligence unit 
in the tax authority. At that time, that was before the establishment of the Department mm. of State Security, there were, um, there were four intelligence agencies. So it was the National Intelligence Agency, Crime Intelligence, located within the police, Military Intelligence, located within the army, and Foreign Intelligence. So foreign, the Foreign Intelligence and National Intelligence Agency worked under the same umbrella, and then you had Crime Intelligence and Police mm. and, and Military Intelligence. So that was the only thing. So this is why the, the questions raised now, because you can't just establish something in government without legislation uh, enabling its operation. So um, Pravin Gordon and others like Ivan Pillay saying they did everything according to the book. Okay. There's nothing untoward in, in it. But then you remember that there were all these stories leaked to the Sunday Times um, about uh, high-profile people being um, uh, spied on about the operation of brothels, which doesn't, which doesn't seem to be what a normal, even a normal intelligence unit should be doing. So they they believed that this intelligence unit was um, was targeting certain politi- politicians and was uh, you know, uh, operating on its own bat, conducting illegal activities. So that is the point of dispute. Um, what's happened since then is that a whole range of people, there have been a number of investigations and commissions mm. appointed. There seems to be no single thread emanating from all these investigations and commissions that can tell us decisively who was wrong and who was right. Uh, because as it stands, people like um, Ivan Pillay uh, and Johan Lochenberg um, have uh, since left SARS. So there's been no prosecution on it. So um, when after the, the what, what is now referred to as 912, uh, the uh, elimination of Ntlanta Nene from cabinet in December, um, the, one of the first things Pravin Gordon has mm. done mm. was go back to SARS and and try and deal with this problem because okay. he he remains and then people uh, who worked under him remain under investigation. Okay. So that is the point of tension. That is the reason why there's a tension between him and Tomoyani. Tomoyani, ha- in the meantime, has been undoing the structures that Pravin Gordon set mm. in place when okay. he was House Commissioner and has been uh, uh, has instituted what he's called a transformation program okay. or, or whatever. So Pravin Gordon is trying to stop that process. Tomoyani refuses to, and the underlying reason why why that is is because the dispute over the rogue unit so enter president jacob zuma he uh appointed pravin gordon Mm -hmm. um the official line from the presidency from uh the nc is that they've been working closely together to present the budget that they did but when we when i was in the budget lockup last Mm -hmm. week would you tell us what that actually is (laughs) (laughs) it's um Look, I've been to several uh, budget lockups, but what, what happens is that uh, journalists are taken in under high, high security into into a certain uh, certain parts of parliament. You kept under guard and you given the budget documents. Yeah. And the reason why there's this heavy security is because mm. if you release information about the budget before the minister presents it, it can tamper with the markets. It can affect yeah. uh, the currency and things like that. So it it has to be mm. under strict embargo. Mm. Um, so. During that uh, lockup session, we were given a chance to to study the documents, and then um, we also have a media briefing with the minister, with his deputy, and the director general. So at this media briefing, I think people were quite surprised that the SARS commissioner was not at the top table, and people asked several times. And Pravin Gordon tried to avoid it, and eventually confronted it head on, saying, "There's a problem with this institution. Mm-hmm. We're going to deal with it." So he put it firmly on the table. Um, 
And then uh, I think, you know, the events of the past week has shown that this is much bigger uh, and is much more complex because, you know, there have been stories that he, he uh, presented an ultimatum that he's not pre- prepared to work with, with Tom Moyani, that is either him or, or Tom Moyani. Mm. But I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. Mm. I think he's, it's much more of a sophisticated poli- politician. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where we are at now. And I'm, I'm, I keep hearing reports about this letter and a letter was supposedly sent to Pravin Godan before making the budget speech from Hawks officially informing him of the investigation. And that's, that's being described as some measure to, to rattle him or shake him up. Or and do you put any weight on that? Do you think that's politics or is it just procedure? Okay. So it was apparently sent to him four yeah. days before the budget, yeah. right? And it's, it's a list of 27 questions related to this investigation into the rogue unit. But, if you read those questions, hmm. it's like something you and I would write on a serviette in the bar <laughs> after three hours of drinking, you know, where you like want to take a stab at something, but you're not really sure what you're investigating. Okay. I was <laughs> That's a great description. That's wonderful. And we have written things on serviettes <laughs> yeah, in right. bars before, Let's, so you know how I don't how think bad. we need to go into that. <laughs> About where Greg wrote his article from last night. That's just... <laughs> Um, okay, so it's, uh, it's it's feel, really, does it's, it feel unprofessional? Does it feel like they don't actually know what they're looking for? Does it feel like threats? it looks like a yeah. giant fishing uh, expedition? Okay. Okay. There's there's no there's no legal basis under which mm. the questions are being asked. It's not saying what what lo- laws have been violated mm. here. Mm. It's like saying it, the, like one of the questions I remember it says, "Do you remember if any things happened without your knowledge while you were there?" Now, if it's if it happened without his knowledge, how would he know? I mean, how would you ask that question? Okay. It's like completely ridiculous okay. things. Okay. And and they use the word things, not... Oh, did, like anything. Yeah, okay. anything. Oh, like, geez. you know, so did somebody... Was somebody stealing the um, the powdered milk, you know, under your nose? So, yeah, it, it, it's quite ridiculous. And I think that... Added to this whole mess, mm. you know, that you can see that, that the, the Hawks are not clear what they're investigating. Only yesterday mm. did they clarify to say, well, they're not investigating Pravin Gordon, they're investigating this unit. But clearly they're not sure what, what crime has been committed here and what, and who exactly is supposed to have committed it. I mean, I would think the finance minister would be untouchable right now, given all the issues at 9-12. As I didn't know it was being called that. That's hilarious. In fact, well, yeah. the funny thing, so in the funny. in the lockup media yeah. briefing, somebody was asking about the removal of Nene, yeah. of Nene yeah. and um, Pravin Gordon, deadpan, yeah. says, excuse me, it's called 9-12. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> but I would think you'd be untouchable. So I would think the last thing, if I'm the president or anybody on that side, the last thing I'd want to do is, is cause any more commotion or rock, rock the finance and economic board at all. Well, you know, it, no politician should be untouchable. But the thing is that Pravin Gordon is basically holding, uh, you know, the economy uh, or, or, you know, the, the bits, the fragments of, of, uh, of the economy together at the moment. If he does let go or if he is fired, I think mm. we will see things falling to pieces. Um, and I think everybody knows that. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think that he, and that is why I don't think that he is. Amateur and childish enough to be able to say, uh, you know, either, either you fire Tomoyani mm. or I go. I think that he, um, wants there, to, he wants to be able, given the political freedom to, 
to implement the budget he's presented. And that's a big question about that budget. Um, it's a hard budget. Um, it's major cost cutting across government. And all of those things cannot be implemented if he does not have political support. And in order to have political support, the direction has to come from the president downwards. Now, you know, there's several things that are at play here. For example, mm. the head of the Hawks mm. is a person of, of questionable integrity. Um, he, he, mm. he was declared by a judge as being a liar and he's still the head of the Hawks. Um, so, you know, do you t- trust the credibility of an investigation conducted by this person, especially into, um, you know, the South African Revenue Service that, that basically controls all, in, I mean, most of the incoming revenue in, in, into the National Treasury? Um, so this is a big problem. And I think in order to sort it out, it's, it's more than just removing Tom Moyani. It's about establishing boundaries for everyone to be able to do mm. their, their jobs mm. and to establish the integrity of government. I mean, wish somebody could just rule on the rogue unit once and for all and just say, hey, it was... It was done correctly or incorrectly, and so we can get over it and move past. It. Yes, but you, I mean, you've had a judge yeah. declare, declare on 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 Lemesa and he was still appointed the head of the Hawks. So, it's so the, you know, this is the problem with our government is that you, even when you have these serious findings against people, you you, you still don't have government acting in the way it should. Yeah, sorry, Greg, want to say something? So just to look at. The letter from, or the statement from ANC Secretary General Guedamantashe. What last Friday? I think. That's yeah. right. Which, uh, which condemned, uh, these, these questions that came to Gordon as, as, you know, trying to rattle him, destabilize the economy and whatnot and whatnot. What do you make of that? And how does that then link into the, the politics within the ANC and how this issue is playing out? Okay. Firstly, uh, Guedamantashe does not issue media statements regularly. It's a, it's a rare occurrence. Okay. Like the one other time when he did uh, issue it was on the Gupta plane landing and it came out really hard and which is why ministers in government were jumping around after that. So when this statement came out, it meant there's serious, it's serious business and he's taking this matter seriously. And he used words like destabil, uh, th- that, that those, those questions from the mm. Hawks were intended to destabilize the budget. Um, and I think that's a firm message from Lutuli House, um, or from, from Greta Mantashe. And, you know, I, I was also thinking about the timing of it on Friday because the officials of the ANC, that's Jacob Zuma, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, Baleka Mbete, Greta Mantashe, uh, Zuelim Keys, and Jesse Duarte meet on Monday mornings. Mm. I was wondering why Mantashe opted to issue that statement on mm, Friday before and yeah. before, you know, before they met. And I think it's because he thought he would be vetoed because see, they, they appears to be, uh, differences, to put it mildly, um, on, on Pravin Gordon and on this issue of SARS. And this is the big mystery. Why? Mm. Why? Why? Like, why, why is there this hit on Pravin Gordon? Why is it political? And, you know, I've been trying to find that out in the past few days. And I found people telling me the most bizarre things, such as, you know, bringing up things from Pravin Gordon's history, um, you know, when the ANC was still in exile, mm. and um, raising things that apparently, I don't know if this is true, that apparently President Zuma said he has never worked closely with Pravin Gordon before, and he did not want to actually appoint him as finance minister in 2009. As I said, I don't know if this is yeah, true, but, but yeah. this is what's in the rumor mill that, you know, so it, it means that there is some problem with, um, with trust 
you know, in that relationship. So even if there's no hostility, there there seems to be, uh, you know, uh, the people who are suspicious of each other and, and don't quite trust each other. It's also interesting to look back to, to December. I think it was December, right? Yeah. Uh, when, when finance minister and Chancellor Nene was fired, because the details of that have still been quite murky. There are all these different stories as to why, why he was let go, but, but I think few people believe that the, the president's, um, explanation that he's going to go to the BRICS, to the BRICS development bank. So we still don't know what he was sort yes. of doing or preventing then, and maybe how that could play out with, uh, Pravin Goran coming in. I think if, if, uh, Nene was a different person, mm. you know, if he was not, the kind of like gentle soul he is, I, you know. I think we we now have a massive fight on our hands. If he ever had to speak about mm. what went on in the months um, uh, preceding his firing, um, and you know, the thing about the BRICS Bank is starting to be shown to be a lie because uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Pravin Gordon announced in the budget was that the, that office is opening next month. Well, this month, March. And this, so if Ntlantla Nene was supposed to be the head of it, he would be appointed by now. Was yeah, Russell, please. There was yeah. this curious thing last Monday, just before the budget, where the, uh, where the, where the president said, uh, at that, uh, PPC, uh, gathering, was it that Van Royen was the most qualified <laughs> finance minister yes. ever appointed? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that, that was, I mean, you don't do that to your finance minister when you want everybody to have, uh, complete, yeah. uh, confidence in, um, in the in the budget, you don't you pull the rug out from under your finance minister and say yeah. he's not the most qualified it's person. Guy, yeah. Yes, but the, I think that you know the other thing that he said at that time, other than um, that he's not the most qualified, is he said Des Van Royen is my comrade, um, and that is very hurtful because Trevor Manuel, uh, Pravin Gordon, Tlantla Nene all have been high-ranking members of the NC. What makes Van Van Royen your comrade and not them? Yeah. I mean the trust thing you mentioned. Yes. At this point, that's a trust thing. Yes. And just, I would feel there's a sentiment that the president wants to appoint who he wants to appoint. And the second you force my hand, I don't like that you forced my hand. And I will make it known. I'll constantly make it known. I can't help but feel that there's something there about that. And Jenny, quickly, we'll probably take a break at half past, but I want to actually talk about the actual budget for a second. Oh, okay. You mentioned that it was quite cross-cutting. We were quite prepared for. A big shock. I think we're all prepared for increased taxes. We're all prepared for massive budget cuts. So we're kind of all bracing ourselves. And you had, you had, you said what, four hours in the lockup <laughs> to actually pour over this. So I'm curious from that, what stood out for you? Any surprises? So what were the key sort of talking points from the budget uh, from you? I think everybody was expecting an auster- austerity budget mm-hmm. and it didn't come. Austerity would have meant major, uh, major cuts in spending in issues like, um, uh, like social grants yeah. and, um, infrastructure and things. And you didn't see that. So, you know, he, he tried to walk the line, uh, in, in terms of the budget. So he, he cut where he could. So he, he's trying to reduce government spending by 10 billion. Um, and 25 billion over three years. So that's a lot. He's trying to reduce the deficit, but he's trying to maintain spending, mm. um, so that the poor is not punished. Um, and then, um, you know, as you say, people were expecting a tax increase. Mm. Um, last year there was a 1% 
tax uh, increase across the board. So it was expected that that would happen. Mm-hmm. So there, mm-hmm. there is, there are moderate increases in taxes, but it's more in, in the higher earning scales. And then he's found all sorts of other means to, like creative means to, um, to, to raise taxes. So mm-hmm. the, the, the fuel levy is going up, for example. Um, the levy on inc- incandescent globes, I didn't even know I was paying uh, <laughs> extra incandescent globes. Incandescent globes is uh, th- those globes that yeah. you, okay. So you know you have the 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 few I mean, the, the the efficiency globe, whatever it's called. Yes. The 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 green globes. Like renewable energy yes, saving. Yes, yeah, energy yeah. saving. That's yeah. what it's called. Yes. So in order to get more people to to buy those ones, okay. etc. So the normal globes, there'll be a higher tax on, okay. Okay. so that you you opt to buy the oh, the, okay. the 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 the. Energy efficient yes. ones. Okay. And then he, he, he says it's going to be, um, a tax on, t- uh, there's going to be a tire tax. I don't know what that is, but it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> after four hours, after four hours, she can't tell yeah, us what that is. That's, that's right. sad. Well, she, four hours. she couldn't Google that, no, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it says. Like car tires. Y- yes. yes, car yes. tires. Well, I mean, what else do you do with a tire? No, you said tires. Like, I don't know what that is. No, not the, I, so, I mean, yeah. I don't know what the tire tax is. It's okay. going to be implemented from the 1st of October, but okay. it says it's measured on weight. So I don't know if you like have to buy thin tires. <laughs> Now they're going to have to protest. Next time I'm at these student protests I'm going to be like Guys, just just relax <laughs> This isn't a time to burn tires <laughs> And not <laughs> the heavy ones yes. yeah, You paid the tax right. yeah. Yes So, you know they, I don't know if you have to put our tires on diets You know <laughs> Something <laughs> Or like do, do you have to like pay every year When you pay for your um, yeah. vi- vehicle license Only when you buy I don't know We yes. thought we thought the pomegranate question was difficult This tire <laughs> This is an incandescent globe <laughs> No, Greg, you mentioned something about the sugar tax. I think you call it a fat tax. So the increased tax on sugar. No, I would never call it that. I think it's a sugar tax. Yeah, you would never say. So, that. but I think it's not a bad idea. It's, it's a very good idea. It's, it's, it's both obviously both to raise taxes and, mm. and it's a creative way to raise taxes, but it's also uh, to to I guess try to promote healthy eating. Yes, about the the taxes so far is only on beverages. That have okay. sugar in, okay. so Healthy it's not drinking. it's not on like also oh, yes, yeah, so you know it's not going to affect your 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 bar of chocolate. So uh, in this crazy country, we'll have ARB just now taking uh, the government to the constitutional court because their bottling uh, factory will in, be in trouble because uh, less. Well, they just have to make more Coke Light, I suppose. Is that an advertisement? Listen, brought to you, man. That'll be so cool. Like this light is in. There. Um, what haven't we talked about? State-owned enterprises. There's talk of a oh, potential gosh. SAA yeah. merger. But if that's just speculation, or what's what's going on there? Okay, so that was yeah. the, the big the big story after mm. after uh, the budget is what's happening with the state-owned enterprises. And um, I think Pravin Gordon is going to be taking a very hard line mm. on mm. it if he's allowed to. He wants to change the board of SAA, and soon he was talking about weeks. Um, uh, he he wants to remove the word bailouts from the government vocabulary because things like ESCOM and SA have just been like a Pac-Man, you know, eating up the, uh, the budget, uh, completely reliant on government bailouts. Um, and yes, he was so SAA. Uh, he was talking about a merger between uh, SA Express and uh, SAA because, mm. um, you know, for as far as I can remember, when I, since I've been reporting in politics, SAA has been on a downward plunge, not literally. Thankfully, but uh, <laughs> it, it's it's finances, and you know they've they've been so many um, interventions to try mm. and assist it, mm. and and it hasn't been working. 
so you know it's uh, i think that now that saa and um, is is been run from the treasury and i think that this was a point of dispute anyway uh between santlanene and dudumiani and i think now that pravin gordon's day he's putting the boot in and uh, he wants a new board and i think he's going to be rather strict with the, with the finances from now on that's really encouraging sorry Russell. he also managed to find money of course for higher education i think that was another important oh, that's thing that's a really big talking yeah. point yes. I mean, given the so that was i think 16 mm. 0.3 billion, which will make up the shortfall for um, the the zero percent increase okay. for for this current year. But it does not deal with the long term problem mm. about you know access uh, accessibility of higher education and all the other issues at play. Um, you know, for example, example student accommodation and things like that. So that is still a major problem. So you know, you, and this is this is the reason why you can't really throw money at a problem. Mm. You know, it's much more complicated. The higher education sector is in serious upheaval now, and it, it will take more than intervention from the Treasury to sort it out. Absolutely. I mean, Greg, you at UFS over the weekend, so I'm looking forward to chatting a bit about that later. But before that, cool. we'll just go into a quick break. Um, we'll be right back. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Greg is gesturing wildly. I'm not sure why. He's just excited to be back. We're going to the second half of the show. We were talking all things SARS and what's going on with, with the fighting we're hearing about that's being reported about with the finance minister and so on. Now we want to switch gears a bit, um, talking a bit uh, about something that happened just post the Oscars. So we had the Oscars, I think that was Monday morning, SA time if I'm not wrong. And one movie that, that was really shook up the Oscar conversations was a movie Spotlight. And we, we, I think we were part of the premiere that happened here in, in, in Joburg. And we interviewed one of the, the people who was sort of part of that, of what went down, for lack of a better word. So we interviewed um, Richard Seip last week. And he's an ex-monk, ex-priest, um, and psychologist. He describes himself as an ex-monk priest. I'm not sure what a monk priest is. <laughs> but he was part of, the, it's part of the, the research that went into the Boston Globe um, articles and groundbreaking, um, uh, um, what's the word, investigations into child abuse in, in, especially in Boston, and then that kind of spiraled, about, spiraled from there about priests and the and the Catholic Church and so on. So, Russell, um, I'm glad you're in studio today just to hear your perspective. You wrote an article about that this morning that that I'm told is going viral, <laughs> and I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts. Listen to the interview, and of course, uh, your interest in this started long before the interview. So, I'm curious when you first sort of came upon. Um, sort of Richard Seip and the Boston Globe um, work and, and, and sort of how that interplays with your personal experience being part of religious organizations. I mean, I think Seip has been writing about this stuff since the 1970s when he left. So, you know, Seip didn't just come on the scene around the time of the crisis. He's yeah. been around long before. Mm. And many of the things that Seip was talking about last week are issues. I mean, we can't deny that. I mean, I think that uh, when Seip says that there's, there's a systemic problem in the church that needs to be dealt with, mm. he's absolutely correct. And his evidence over 40 years uh, supports this. Funny enough, there's a mm. priest here in Johannesburg yes. by the name of Victor Kotza, yeah. who's also quoted in some of uh, Seip's research because he's also a psychologist. He, he's an older guy now, but uh, I think he's retired. But um, And he found the same here in South Africa or in Southern Africa as what Seip found, uh, you know, uh, in the States when it came to, uh, you know, sexuality, the church, and especially yeah. uh, priests. Um, what happened can never be defended. I mean, mm. Wh- mm. what happened in the church is inexcusable. Um, and I think uh, uh, that's the first thing that Seip says. And the second thing that Seip says, which I think is the more important thing, is that I, for some reason, don't understand why we 
in the church are unable to deal with this problem for once and for all. Uh, you know, even at the moment, there's a commission going on where a high-ranking official has been questioned uh, about uh, his knowledge of it. So he himself is not accused, mm. but once again, his knowledge of it. Mm. And sometimes one wonders, you know, okay, so people who do those kinds of things clearly have got a problem, but why is it that the authorities in the church are, are the people that uh, seem to have covered this up? And, and that's what really comes out in Spotlight. So I think Spotlight... You know, certainly uh, deserves that award. Yeah. I think that they do pierce the silence which uh, which needed to be uh, pierced, um, and I think that uh, it's only the beginning of what really needs to be done. The church has lost cred- credibility, and many people within the church will try and defend this from this point of view or that point of view. I don't think that that can be done. I mean, I think we've got to call it what it is: disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm Catholic Kingsley, so you know, watching that movie was Mm. extremely difficult. Mm. But I'm also a journalist, and watching that was, you know, you you can only aspire to that level of journalism. So you know, it it, you feel so conflicted. uh, because you know it's so soul destroying on one hand and so uplifting. You know you can you uh, you know thinking about the type of that type of journalism mm. that can penetrate um, an institution as powerful as the Catholic Church um, and and break open an issue in that way um, and and it and it leads to consequences. And I think you know when you, if you watch the Academy Awards last night and um, you, some of the acceptance speeches around it, where mm. people were saying that. Um, you know, that's what journalism is supposed to be about, about holding the powerful to account. And we know, for example, now in South Africa, for example, how mm-hmm. difficult that is, uh, you know, to be able to hold the powerful account to account, um, in any institution. Um, but I think that, uh, the, the, the thing about, um, this investigation yeah. is it, uh, as Russell says in his piece, it, mm-hmm. it shows how, um, different sectors of society colluded, um, to keep the abuse secret. Um, and I think that that, that is, um, uh, concerning in every issue because you find that uh, people feel that, you know, they, uh, f- for example, they need to protect political interests and you, you find a collusion, co- collusion between society and different institutions and people and sometimes the media to protect corruption. And I think, you know, that, that, that's why Spotlight is such an eye opener. Mm. And I think the movie brings it out quite clearly. I mean, the Boston police were complicit. You know, the media were complicit. They knew. Boston Globe knew of I some know, of these stories since 1976. The lawyers kept saying, "We sent this to you. We in, sent this in to you." In 1976, silence of who, who but even, got this. But yeah. even lawyers. I mean, there was one lawyer who had dealt with like almost 60 cases, and he had done it quietly under the table, settled it between the church and who and the victims, put the money in his pocket, and carried on. You know, and society itself. I mean, there were some parents who said to their children, "How could you possibly say that?" You know, there were people that were complicit in this as well. So just as much as it tells the story of you know this heinous these heinous crimes that took place in the church it also tells the story of how in a society we can be uh, quiet when it comes to dealing with these difficult issues across the board I think that um you know that this the, the movie has uh, has opened up important conversations mm. in the church and in mm. society but I think that you know I I was for example a bit concerned listening yeah. oh, I I couldn't listen I was sitting on a plane last week but yeah. I was watching your tweet yeah. uh, after interviewing uh well, while you were interviewing Saip yeah. and my concern was that um uh, the correlation drawn or the relationship drawn between celibacy yes. and abuse and I think that that's a lazy way to deal with it because um, you, you can't say that people abuse children because of uh, sexual desire. 
uh, that's like saying rape is about sex. It's not. It's an act of violence. Pedophilia is not about sex. Mm-hmm. It's um it's it's a criminal act. It's um uh, you know you can't you can't justify it by saying somebody is seeking sexual pleasure, um and uh, you know and and because they're deprived of it, hence their their tendency to to abuse. And um I think that that is something that needs mm. to be explored more mm. deeply in terms of how people are having these conversations about spotlight. And I think the research shows as well that. You know, if, if one looks at, for example, levels of abuse in the priesthood, they mirror that of society. I mean, abuse is happening in a number of different places. That's not to excuse it in the church, but to say it's happening in a number of different places. Therefore, if celibacy was the core issue around this, then why is it that we see the same sort of figures reflected in other segments of society as well? So I think there were two issues there which were not quite clear in the SIPE interview. The first one is SIPE claims that 50% of priests are not living mm, celibacy. Not, That's not one celibate. issue. Absolutely. Okay? The other issue is the question of how many pedophiles are in the priesthood, and I think that's the second issue. There are some guys who are not pedophiles who might be uh, yeah, having sex with consenting, sex yeah, with yeah, consenting yeah. adults versus those who are abusing children. And I, and I think there's an important distinction there. Mm, so I, th- I thought the idea was to kind of build... I mean, you're right, it's a theory. The celibacy thing is a theory. And saying... And I remember his argument was saying that celibacy is unnatural was the starting point. Celibacy is unnatural and, and that forced celibacy... Is, is is what he's ascribing to as the problem. And the second you take a group of people and you mandate it that you must be celibate, already there's a problem. So I, I, my understanding is that the 50% was to demonstrate that this mandated celibacy thing is not working. And again, those are U.S. figures, so perhaps it may be, and you, may, you can tell us, Russell, if these things are reflected um, in different parts of the world. But I, I think my understanding was that was sort of a building block of saying, I'm telling you celibacy is not working. Argument one is... People aren't doing it anyway. Mm. And then argument two is that you, when you mandate something, uh, it, it, that is quote unquote unnatural, it, it has these effects on otherwise people who are committed to service and committed to, 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 to serving communities. And, and this is the effect of putting people in situations that are unnatural. So that's how I sort of took the, the building of the argument. I'd, I'd be interested, Russell, yeah. if it's, if, if, if what seems like a, it seems that, it's a simplistic sort of link to make. Okay, if you're celibate, you're going to be a pedophile. That seems rather simplistic. But then, what other theories and research is there explaining some of these some of these issues from from the Catholic Church side? Is it is it something to do with oh, like one of the things that movie shows? And, and I think we should also not. Well, while I think this movie is very important, there's many much uh, a lot of other work around the world that has also tried to focus on these issues for a lot for for quite a while in many many different countries, but. What other explanations can there be? Is it the fact that, like this movie did show, that uh, some of these guys won't be held accountable? Um, is it a power relations sort of thing? Yeah, all those things. And also arrest mm. and sexual development. I mean, there's a developmental problem there. That some people, and for, for various reasons because of things that happened to them, it was found that many of these guys who had abused had mm. been abused as mm. well, for example. And some of them had been abused by priests. So they just kind of, okay, uh, okay, uh, okay. the vicious cycle just uh, continues. So what happens is mm. that their sexual development stops in their teen years for whatever psychological reason. Okay. So when they are 40, 50, they're acting out as if they're still 13, 14. So there's a disconnect there in their own psychosexual development, which then obviously leads to uh, the, these kinds of problems you know i mean when the story first break for example mm. some people in the church said oh you see it's because there's a high number of gays in the priesthood it's it's a gay problem this it's gays that are abusing and this turned out to be false as well that there was no uh, higher number of 
clergy who identified themselves as homosexuals that were abusing uh, children than what they were heterosexuals. So that was also interesting to see that, that the playing field was, was leveled there as well. Mm. So I, it's got to do with psychosexual development. And just as you'll find people in society who have got the same uh, issues, uh, you're going to find that uh, amongst priests as well. I think uh, the point that you, you, you made uh, in your column today that um, when, when people, uh, you, that this is prevalent amongst teachers uh, in, even in families that you have abuse of children and I think that in any situation where you have people in positions of power or mm-hmm. you know and have access to vulnerable people mm-hmm. um, so you know in the church where you you have priests who are seen uh, you, you know that they have a, a, a kind of special status um, in communities and in society and then you have children who are altar servers and things you know so that they, they uh, spend a lot of time with them so the opportunity arises and there is uh, you know access to vulnerable people so I think that that's one issue but I, I don't know how you get around that that kind of thing I mean you have it in in, in classrooms where uh, children get abused by teachers um, and uh, you know you've seen it where where young kids you've had kids uh, like of three and four years old uh, being molested some of them murdered by relatives um, so it you know it's it I think that you know the six percent thing when you when you see it in the movie mm-hmm. that you know it's six percent of priests it looks rather high and especially when you consider it in numbers i can't remember what the what the number was, was but i think it was no it was ni- in, ni- in the spotlight it was 90 yeah. yeah it was 90 i think out of 1500 yeah. um i mean it it looks horrendous um but it, that 6% is seemingly across society yeah, that's exactly what the evidence suggests, that it's across society. And across um, churches, you were saying. Yeah, across churches as well. I mean, the, the Catholic Has Church is not the only church that's had these problems. There was a story not so long ago about a Methodist minister who was married who was up for uh, abusing, uh, I don't know, a, a parishioner's child or something like that. Um, so, you know, it does happen across, uh, across uh, the board. I think the power thing is quite important as well. I think, um, I think that, you know, that people who are in positions of power mm. and especially uh, this kind of religious mystique that is around the whole power thing and the fact that uh, ministers have been put on a pedestal has also contributed to this. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, that there's a breakdown that's happened after this crisis with that as well. But I think certainly the fact that parents could say to their children, how could you dare say that the priest did that to you, just shows how powerful uh, in the in the imagination these kinds of people were. Okay, so I'm just trying to find the difference here. So I think... I think in my mind, so the difference is one sort of, I can call it a school of thought that says this is an especial problem in the church that is systemic to the structures and the setup and the history of the church versus saying this is a societal problem and the church is just a subset of society and therefore they are bound to be people who abuse children in the church. I think that... And I feel like we are, like Ranjani and Russell, you're saying that the church is just a subset of society and this was bad. Yes, but anyway. I think where the big problem yeah. arises is how the church deals with it. Okay. Whereas with society, it's, 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 it's a black and white issue where, you know, it's a criminal act, people are prosecuted. But I think that the problem with, with the way the church has been dealing is that there has been active concealment of abuse. And that's the big problem. That's the first problem. The second problem, I think, is the whole question of human sexuality in the church. 
that the church needs to face some serious questions about human sexuality, what? which it's not which it's not facing. What are these questions? So, for example, yeah. the question of celibacy. Yeah. Mm. I think that's a question that needs to be faced. I mean, how can you prescribe to people stuff around contraception or whatever mm. when this kind of stuff uh, when this kind of stuff is happening, yeah. you know, uh. in your backyard? Mm. So, those kinds of questions have to be faced by the church as well. So, it's a question of how you deal with this crisis, but it's also the more systemic stuff. I think that Sip was uh, talking about mm. is. Is the church facing not just those questions, but the broader questions on taking responsibility uh, for what's happened in the past and also charting a, a, a viable way to, to overcome these issues? So what the Vatican has done is set up a commission uh, to, to deal with these child protection issues, mm-hmm. and they've come out very strongly about certain things. So, for example, in the past, a bishop was like a king in his area, and he could decide what to do. The Vatican mm-hmm. has made it clear that any allegation that comes has to be reported now. Okay. So protocols have been put in place. However, I'm not so sure, and I'll probably get fired for saying this. I was just I'm thinking, not, you're, you're like treading close to being excommunicated. No, but, yeah. but, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> Kingsley's just bring it on. <laughs> but I'm not yeah. so sure. Oh, he started the problem. <laughs> I'm not so sure that they're dealing with the more systemic problems. Okay. So they're dealing with the issues around the current crisis. But if it's crisis, reported and something happens, we yeah. must take action. And even to say, yeah. you know, how do we... So even now, we've got screening of guys. So a guy wants okay. to join the priesthood, he's quite heavily screened. He's, okay. he's put through psychological tests, all okay. this kind of stuff. And background um, checks and, and things. All those, okay. you know, a criminal record okay. check and all those okay. types of things. That's, that's fine in one way. But the other question... The, the, the more key questions about the church's perception, the church's teaching on human sexuality, that is not being interrogated. You know, I mean, people are still one. There was this big thing last week where the Pope sort of suggested that maybe in the area of the Zika virus, uh, condoms might be something which uh, which the church should use. And half uh, the church went up in flames. So how can he say this? You know, you, you know, he can't say stuff like that. I mean, these are the these are the more systemic problems. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. And it sounds like that's the key to asking, are we creating an environment? And again, not to say it must be celibacy. I think that's just a theory. But asking questions of how we created an environment that might exacerbate things that already exist through inability to tackle. It's interesting. A, a rather conservative uh, yeah. a Catholic uh, a newspaper in the UK yeah. put up a, a, a story last week mm. where people are saying, um, you know, this whole celibacy thing needs to be interrogated and the church needs to revisit that. So the fact that more conservative right wing sort of uh, segments of Catholic media are saying that is interesting uh, that maybe, you know, people are starting to question this. But actually, the response to that, even from some of the South African hierarchy, was to say, no, we can't, you know, we, you, this is not the problem. This is society trying to enforce its values on the church, which, you know, is ridiculous. I mean, I'm glad that you brought up this, uh, the South African angle. It's something I did mean to ask you is, are there things we are, is there any more nuance you can give us about how this issue plays out at a local level, um, how it's being received, what the leadership is saying and doing about it? Is, are there any sort of key differences that you think are worth pointing out that's happening locally? Based on the evidence yeah. that Sype presented yeah. in the 90s, the bishops here in South Africa. And that local priests were working on. Yeah, they, yeah. they put, they put uh, the Bishop of Rustenburg mm. already in the 90s wow. put together a protocol because okay. he said this is going to be a major problem okay. in the church. And okay. this story only blew in 2003. Yeah. So a protocol was put in place as to how church personnel should behave. And they started the screening process, although probably not as tight as mm, what it should have been in the 90s yeah, uh, in South Africa. They also developed by... The, the late 90s, they developed a very strong protocol for people already out working for the church. Mm. There were there was a document you had to sign. Mm. There was all sorts of uh, different uh, 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 processes put in place, etc., etc. 
there are there have been clergy in this country who have been up for uh, uh, abuse. Some have have been to court. Some cases are still pending. Others have been withdrawn, and and there's been a couple that have been uh, uh, convicted. We find here in South Africa, however, that the whole question around celibacy and priest relationships uh, with consenting adults yeah. is, an, is 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 happening all over the place. In actual fact, I think if I'm correct, the statistics for that are much higher than anything involving minors. Jeez, that's, that's that's really interesting. I'd love to get a hold of some of. Them. Are they publicly available? I hope it's something. Some of those, some of those, yeah, yeah, some of those figures are publicly available. There was a statement not so long ago, yeah. I think, uh, from the bishops that uh, outlined some of those issues. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's not like we need to do a follow up or part three on this, and maybe get some of those bishops on here to to talk about. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> We've got about two minutes. Greg, you wrote an amazing article on what's going on in the free state and specifically on UFS in the context of the student protests. I'm curious to hear from you. You were there over the weekend. It feels like from here watching on Twitter that it's an all-out race war and it's violence all over the place. So I'd love to hear from you who was actually there, what, what the situation is like at UFS. Uh, so when I went up there on, I think, Friday morning, I arrived and spent, spent a couple of days up there. No, it wasn't an all-out race war. It was things that things had calmed down by then and... Uh, the protests had sort of stopped over the weekend after, after the police and private security guys had cracked down on late, late on Thursday night on some of the protesters. But also interestingly, many of the, the white students who stay on the res campuses just, uh, left, you know, they, okay. they, well, while, while the campus was closed for last week. So there were still some around, but, but, so the, the divisions were sort of set for then. Um, but then they were back this week and the protests have resumed a little bit. But I guess the, the key thing, that I heard was, I'd say two things, um, from students, many, many stories of, um, daily racism, um, just sort of systemic type stuff. Um, that's, that's part of the culture they say at the university of free state in Bloemfontein. Um, and the second thing is I heard many, many stories as well of police and private security guards, uh, ill-treating particularly black students and and showing uh more i guess violence towards the black students which they felt um was perhaps expected knowing what they know about the university in bloemfontein but also a further injustice um while they're trying to fight for equality and this, I see there's building opposition to Jonathan Janssen. yeah that's right um hopefully we'll be able to look at that more in depth soon but there's actually quite a number of interesting um, reasons why they want to target, target uh, the Vice Chancellor Janssen. Most, most particularly because they think he's failed on transformation objectives, but also because certain acts he's made in the past after protests before, uh, they say victimized students. And, and as soon as these protests started, they thought, and, and then Janssen didn't stop that rugby match where there was racial violence last week and then mm. sort of police and security mm. attacked the protesters. Mm. They said, shit, it's clear we're going to get victimized again. So mm. there's no way we can keep on studying if Janssen stays. Everyone thinks, like a lot of these protesters think they're going to, they're just going to get kicked out of the university. And that's quite interesting because Janssen has been seen to be, uh, you know, a voice of reason in, in the education sector. A lot of people think that, you know, he should be in a leadership position in Absolutely. education. Yeah. And uh, it seems that the situation is, is running, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of out of his hands at the moment. He's no longer in control there. As is in every other university. Yeah. I don't think the vice chancellors anyway, um, you know, are, are really in control anymore. I think the question Janssen and, and some of the other vice chancellors have to have, but particularly Janssen with his um, sort of togetherness 
um, type attitudes. Yeah, it's uh, a very rainbow nation. We are one. Yeah, sort of yeah. The, the the question yeah. if if whether he hasn't. I guess this is a question for the country. If yeah. if we haven't sort of um, highlighted reconciliation so much that we've we've neglected the the concerns of our of of those who need redress and and changing cultures. On that point, we're out of time. Are we going to have pomegranate shooters, no? <laughs> <laughs> I really want to say something funny. I've got nothing. I don't know anything about pomegranate. I'm out. Just assume I made a great joke. Thank you for listening. Please download and share the podcast. We'll see you next week. Ranjani, Russell, Greg, you're amazing. Thank you so much. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.